Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way podcast. Um, I'm, you know, fascinated by humans and what makes us tick and what makes us different than other species. And in order to be fascinated by humans, I think it's important to look at all aspects of humanity. That's why I, I was tempted to call this podcast uh, Sex, Religion, and Politics, because, well, the more we talk about those things, the more diffused uh, they are. I think a similar topic to that is addiction. Now, I am not an addict, uh, but I have many friends that are in recovery. Um, I had on my mom's side, had a long um, long lineage of alcohol abuse, um, uh, but I am aware of impulse. And as a person with ADHD that struggles with impulse control, it is somewhat of a miracle in some ways that I'm not, that I'm not an addict. So, that's why I'm excited to have my guest today, Erica Ball. Erica and I met through um, Unink, which we've had the founders of Unink on this podcast, Ben and Liz. And Erica is the founder uh, and executive director of a nonprofit called Beautifully. We are the we are those people, and it's a nonprofit dedicated to changing the narrative of addiction recovery through sharing stories of hope in our community, which is some damn good copy. So welcome, Erica. Hi, Justin. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for doing this. This is, a, you know, as I said in the intro, a, a topic that a lot of people, especially in the United States, don't want to talk about. Um, yeah. And um, and I, I have changed my views of how to treat and treat addiction and how to care for addicts over the years through, you know, when you raise your consciousness, you can't help but see things differently. So, um, and you, the work you're doing and following you and getting to know you has been instrumental in that, like this shift from pathology to compassion, really. Um, and you know, a lot of that came from you. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. So we actually, uh, my husband and I are both um, in recovery, We're both the co-founders of We Are Those People. Um, and so I guess, you know, for us, it was it was both a, a lifelong uh, journey of, you know, going in and out of treatment, um, being sober, not being sober, kind of like the story of a lot of people who are, um, who struggle with addiction and who also are in long-term recovery. Um, and just having that experience of um, coming across the different kinds of stigma, whether it's through healthcare or whether it's through, you um, family members or friends or just society in general um, kind of made us want to do something about it. Also, yeah. the rise of uh, the death rates uh, due to fentanyl and the opioid crisis mm -hmm. um, kind of makes it a little bit more urgent. And so we, you know, it's such a huge problem, right? And it's not something that we're going to be able to, to uh, solve in this, you know, anytime soon yeah, but right. we wanted to make some sort of a of a difference and so we decided that we wanted to do advocacy work through sharing people's stories of long-term recovery so we have people who share um, their stories and there's so many different ways um, to be in recovery there's so many different um, models and approaches and so we just kind of share people's stories of how they have reached long-term recovery. We purposely try to keep it positive. 
um, because we want to show people that there is hope in recovery and that we do recover, um, even though it may seem that like it's impossible or like that it will never happen. Um, we purposely keep it positive. And I mean, obviously it's a very dark subject, but um, we try to keep it positive just to provide some hope and inspire people to want to change. Yeah, beautifully said. And for reference, uh, Frank did my lion tattoo on my upper right arm and Virginia's uh, <laughs> famous Indomable tattoo, uh, which she gets lots of comments on. So, Oh, I didn't uh, know Virginia also got a tattoo. That's the same awesome. day, yeah. It was last uh, almost a year ago. We went on our, yeah. we, our one-year anniversary and got tattoos. So. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, we're, so such, we're such hipsters. Um, so... <laughs> Well, the, the first question is a, you know, it's a heavy one, um, but yeah. I'm curious about your take and I'll give you mine on the root cause of addiction. It doesn't seem like it ha happens with other mammals. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe it does. And I don't know enough about other mammals, but it just seems like a distinctly human condition to suffer or deal with addiction. What do you think the root yeah. cause of that is? So I think it's very different for every person. Um, it I don't think there is one thing that um, defines a person who who has addiction. But if you look at the the definition of addiction, addiction is defined as a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and an individual's experiences. So if you have um, a home where, you know, drugs and alcohol are normalized and um, people are, you know, drinking and using freely, um, you kind of have a higher risk of, of addiction. It doesn't mean that you will, because I mean, some people um, are raised in the same household, have the same experiences, um, and yet they, they, they don't become addicted. Um, uh, there's also people who struggle with mental health issues like uh, depression, anxiety, um, maybe if they have experienced some sort of trauma, um, you know, substances are used to self-medicate. Um, so I think it's a lot of different, um, there's a lot of different elements. It could be one, it could be um, all of these things, but I um, if you ask me my personal opinion, I, I believe that it comes down to unresolved trauma. Uh -huh. And I think that a lot of people um, think trauma and they think of a soldier that has gone to war, right. but that's not necessarily true. Trauma is different for every person. Um, uh -huh. I could be in, you know, like, for example, I grew up in the same home as my brother and sister, right? My parents never drank, they never used drugs. Um, that just wasn't a part of our household. Um, yeah, I, I did become an addict and I did become an alcoholic, but my brother and sister did not. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, there, I, I, I did experience some childhood trauma and I believe that, um, that's just how it happened for me. I just, I just, you know, maybe my brother and sister didn't have certain traumas, but I did. So yeah. I think we all experience life very differently. Maybe something that you witness isn't traumatic for you, but it could be traumatic for somebody else. 
Yes, I yeah, very much makes sense. That's very well said. Um, I do as well. I'm not an expert in this by any means, but that I do believe it is unresolved trauma. But I think there's a couple of different interesting other traumas. So you have your your classic, like my childhood, lots of violence in my childhood, and I it's a miracle I didn't become and you know more especially with ADHD. Like I said. Um, but, and so there's like emotional, physical, sexual trauma. I didn't have the sexual trauma, but the emotional, physical, for sure. Um, yeah, I know lots of people that had, in quote, perfect childhoods that are, that struggle with addiction. And, and I think, so I, I trace it to two other things. And I love the way you said it. it's different for everybody. There's no singular root cause. I, but I think it's a worthy thing if, if you're someone that maybe struggles with, um, addiction or struggles with, uh, you know, substance abuse to examine the root cause first before you try to treat the behavior. And there's two other areas that I think are sometimes overlooked. And one is what I call the piece of shit doctrine or piece of shit theology. And the piece of shit theology is within evangelicalism and fundamentalism of Christianity, which is you are inherently flawed and you're disgusting and you're going, you're who you are as a human is, um, an, uh, you know, an enmity to God, um, especially if you're a person of color or you're gay or even there's a lot of misogyny within that as well. And I think that piece of shit doctrine creates separateness between the soul and the body. And then the mind takes over because it doesn't know. The mind's not that smart. It doesn't know. And it starts to use coping mechanisms. And a lot of addicts I know say they started off as a coping mechanism and then it just took over their lives. And I think the second, uh, the second root cause besides the piece of shit doctrine is the, the trauma of certainty. Mm-hmm. Another thing you look at like fentanyl addiction or uh, painkiller opioid ad- addiction, we sometimes think that's kind of a hillbilly, you know, rural, my people, where I'm from, um, uh, issue only, but it is pervasive in upper class suburbs um, mm-hmm. and I think the trauma of certainty is when you, when, when you, when everything is perfect in childhood and you don't have an opportunity to struggle through, you know, rejection, struggle with your emotions and everything is sort of like perfect in quote again, I think that creates a similar type of separateness from who you are, especially if you've come from a family that has a bunch of rule followers and say, well, this is the formula for success, what I call the good life get good, 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 good grades, go to a good college so you can get a good job, have a good career, meet a good person, have some good kids, live in a good neighborhood and have a good retirement, and a good funeral. Fuck that. Most people don't want that. And, and I think that sep- that creates the separateness. And then the, that's why the addiction, especially in suburbs is such a secret. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's like an unspoken thing within a lot of suburban and upper middle-class um, neighborhoods. Yeah, I think that um, it's like this programming that is um, that people are are put through where, you know, you're supposed to, um, you know, graduate college, get married, have children, uh, get a 401k and, you know, like live this this life that like doesn't fit for everybody, obviously. Um, And so I think that people and I think that that was true for myself in a lot of ways. Um, you know, trying to fit the mold and that I just wasn't a part of it just wasn't wasn't it wasn't me it was never me. Um, And I think a lot of people go through that. And it's, I think recovery is all about unlearning those programmings and 
trying to become who you truly are and and living a life that is true to true to you because i think that when you're living a life that is for someone else it kind of makes you um it's like you're betraying yourself um which you know doesn't help with the self-hate that's already there anyway (laughs) exactly yeah especially if you are a trauma survivor and you know the root of you know, on, on the root of unintegrated trauma is often shame. Um, and that, you know, feeds the p- piece of shit doctrine that we have in our culture, you know, as well, not just in religion, but in other areas too, like body shaming or yeah. gender shaming, things like that. So let's look at it from a global standpoint is it seems like the U.S. has a, the U.S. culture has such a different view of addiction than other cultures. So I think of like, Oh, let's say the Netherlands are kind of a common ones where drugs are, are legal, but addiction rates are extremely low. And, and a lot of the reason for that is they have an infrastructure for handling, you know, for there's a, a social policy, a public policy related to addiction that we don't have here. Um, we don't right. have an infrastructure. Our infrastructure for handling addiction is jail, which yes. is really fucking sad. Yeah. Um, so where do you think that came from? And, and we're not, I, mean, I use Netherlands. You can pick a lot of different countries that have a very, very different view of addiction versus the United States. Where do you think that came from? Yeah, I don't know. I, I know what you're talking about. I, I think of Portugal. I know Portugal has, um, they're very, um, they're not so punitive as, as we are here in the United States. Um, and I think it's just, I don't know, it may be like a fear and a misunderstanding of what substance use disorder is and actually treating it as a chronic illness that, um, you know, you wouldn't treat a cancer patient the way that a person with substance use disorder is treated. Um, I think it's just a lack of, of understanding. It also, um, you know, the just say no um, that was back in the, what was back in the eighties. Um, that's just something that has never worked. Um, and, uh, I don't, I don't know specifically why, uh, we have such a different view of addiction than other cultures do, do, but, um, yeah, something that we need to address. (laughs) Yeah. Something we need to examine. Yeah. And I think it, it goes to our, roots as a nation um as well uh in that we were you know unless you're an indigenous person or a person of color you you know the 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 colonization of the of what became the united states was um was very much under kind of puritan or protestant ethic Mm -hmm. and um and there is a uh a punitive uh side to that you know the the Salem witch trials to the, um, you know, the, the heresy calling someone a heretic. And you, you get into a lot of like the early culture of the U S it created that. And it's interesting because it's kind of a divide because you, you know, what we would call the founding fathers were not like that. They were deists. They didn't, they were not, you know, that's why I always kind of, I laugh in a kind of a sarcastic way when people say we were a Christian nation. I was like, no, no, we're not. (laughs) weren't ever a Christian nation. Um, and I'm not against, I'm a Christian, but we're not a Christian nation. But I think that, that you, that you trace it back to, um, what I'll just lump into one bucket of Protestant work ethic, which is, um, which is then laziness or, 
or slothfulness or the seven sins, as it were, is treated as a character flaw. And, um, and then, and so there's that. I think the other reason for it is a little darker even. I think it's good business. It's, it, you look at what we have, how much money is generated through things like even like private prisons yes. Um, yes. or, um, you know, the, the militarization of the police force, which I'm all pro blue and, you know, most of the time, but we have militarized our police force. We, they're not community interdiction anymore. They're often, I mean, some cities they are, but generally speaking, not. Um, and so when you spend money on a system, the system will sustain itself. That's, that's just the nature of systems is that, that, that they will continue to ask for resources. It's what uh, Dwight Eisenhower talked about with the military industrial complex. So we have the narco industrial complex, um, which is there's a shit ton of money being made by people by perpetuating addiction, not yeah. just from, not just from the manufacturers of fentanyl and, you know, they, that huge lawsuit for, I think it was fentanyl lawsuit that, basically put the pharmaceutical company out of business that created it. Um, and that's why I was like, well, one of the ways to handle this is a, is, is we need to, you know, do something different. We need to rewrite the laws related to this, but I don't think we can do that while you still have a lot of very like religious based people that vote based off their religious beliefs rather than vote based off of Liberty or humanity. Um, so I think it's going to be this way for a while. And then just as a side rant, you see what happened like in Portland, for example, where they've legalized drugs, but they don't have any mechanism for that. So now yeah. what it does is that people point to Portland and say, see what happens when you legalize? Well, it's like, no, see what happens when you legalize and you don't provide a system of support uh, right. for people that are addicts. And um, that's my critique or scorn for uh, like progressive views on law enforcement too. Um, I agree with you. And I feel like that is, um, you know, like for a person who is incarcerated for substance use disorder, they're not treated for um, that illness. And once they are released from incarceration, there's no follow-up, there's no treatment plan, there's no, um, you know, uh, there's no help. And how does a person get help if they don't have insurance? Insurance is yeah. so so expensive to get. So for a person who's coming out of prison, they're just trying to survive. They're just trying to get a legal job, right? That um, can help pay the bills. Um, but it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like our society is set up for a person who is coming out of prison, you know. And so the recidivism is going to be high, which. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I it like what you were saying. I do believe that it's uh, you know it, it is a it is a business, and there is money to be made, um, yeah. keeping people sick. Yes, Ugh, I know, I know. Yeah. It's, it's dark, but it's true. Dark, but it's true, and I think it's to do with you know both. Um, like if a political can of a major political candidate um, ran on some sort of platform that included what you said about treatment, treatment uh, programs and, you know, government funded treatment programs, they would be branded a, you know, a socialist or, um, or if you said, we're going to spend tax dollars, we're going to move tax dollars from, from a, a portion of tax dollars from crime fighting to interdiction and in treatment, there's a large swath of the country, maybe 50 some percent of the country that would vote against that yeah. um, because of their, I believe primarily their religious views. 
Um, and when you adopt a belief system that God is some sort of punitive being that wants to punish you for your, your, your sins, as it were, you are going to extend that and project that onto the laws of society. It's inevitable, um, which yeah. is why most I just want people to have a little bit level, a higher level of consciousness about what's about what reality is. Um, mm -hmm. You so, know, what's, what's crazy is that how, you know, we're talking, you were talking about how like we're a little bit of, you know, conservative and, and, uh, and that's why it's, it's, uh, you know, society is a little bit more punitive, but at the same time, our society is so um, much into, you know, drinking for relief, you know, drinking to have fun. Right. Here's happy hour. Like, yeah we're such an alcoholic like nation, you know, yeah. it's, it's like, um, so there's that, there's that contradiction, like, yes. you know, are we, are we conservative or are we, um, you know, a, like a party country or, or, yeah. you know, like, yeah, totally. Where do and we it's stand funny. truly, where do we yes. truly stand on this issue? Well, it's steeped in hypocrisy. I mean, I mean, ultimately, and, uh, and we also have, and I, and again, I'm a, small l libertarian like if but i i i hear what you're seeing and then that inconsistency it's similar to the pro-life people that are only pro-life when it comes to babies no, nothing else um right after and, <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah exactly so i see um yeah that culture of it, it's it's like the, the the you know you go back and look and there's lots of stories about this like you can dig into it where the alcohol lobby um after the overturning of prohibition really focused on criminalizing cannabis usage mm -hmm. um, and made a drinking a much more of a u.s cultural extension and somebody from i can't remember what country my friend is from um i think kenya but he said that when he got here to go to college years ago he said that he that Americans find an excuse to drink for every day of the week. Yeah. Uh, and again, I, I like, I like a, you know, a bourbon on the rocks on occasion. So I'm not judging alcohol consumption. Yeah, no, not judging at all. No, I'm, I am judging hypocrisy and I am judging inconsistency. Um, and so anyway, so related to laws, kind of the final question here to yeah. kick around is as it's related to addiction, what is a current law or policy that you would change? So you have the power to change one law or policy. What would you change? Okay. And it's funny that we were just talking about um, incarceration because this is um, one of the um, a bill. It's called the Medicaid Reentry Act, and it's a bipartisan bill allowing states to restart Medicaid coverage for eligible individuals 30 days prior to their release from prison or jail. So it would provide access to critical care, including mental health and addiction treatment services, reducing the risk of overdose and improving overall health. So, um, so this way, a person who is leaving a correctional facility, they're set up to receive treatment or you know, to be able to at least have some sort of plan as it relates to their addiction, if they are a person who has addiction, um, and hopefully reducing um, their return to, you know, the recidivism. But um, it's just a little something that that could help, I believe. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't know that. That's good to hear. Um, similar to the 
I know it's just an executive order, but the overturning of all of the frivolous um, cannabis, in, you know, incarcerations too. Um, right. Yeah, I think I think um, one of the things about like the Dare program that is was my my older sons went through Dare, and I think that helped them. You know, that was helped them understand the you know seriousness of addiction from a you know, it's potentiality standpoint of the potential for addiction from substances. Um, um, but I think what, what we're, what, what I would do, I would do something extremely bold. It will never pass, but it would be to um, essentially earmark any money that is spent on federal law enforcement, you know, so whether that's grants to cities and counties and states or, you know, the DEA or whatever, that every dollar spent on uh, drug interdiction, an equal dollar needs to be spent on treatment. Yes. Uh, and that treatment then would be distributed not through government. I mean, government sucks at running things. They're only good at regulating. We I mean, look at the VA. We don't want that. But it would be set up so that it funds nonprofits like yours um, and other nonprofits that are involved in the, you know, you're, you're on the advocacy side, but many of them are on the treatment side. They always are struggling for funds. And we just, we do it, we, we do a matching dollar um, standpoint. So if we're going to send a dollar to buy the, you know, the LAPD, a hum, uh, you know, a, a armorized vehicle, then we got to spend a dollar on, uh, on a fund that is uh, distributed through grants to nonprofits. That would be my policy I change. That. That's amazing. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it goes to this. Too. It's like this, that's why I say the most underrepresented group of people in the United States are people in the center because the center, like centrists, and and it's because we can't even agree on the same problems. You know, you sit down with a, you sit down with a right winger, in particular, and to ask them about addiction, and you're going to get a bunch of stuff I just said about you know, well, you know, you know got to get their shit together, pull themselves up by the bootstrap, <laughs> just say no, <laughs> just say no, rub some dirt on them, and you know, pray more. You know, and, and you get people on the far left too, which is like, it's, they have their own version of that. And we sit in the middle and go, you know, guys, this is a solvable problem, but we have to agree on the problem first. So. Right. Exactly. Well, I'll, I'll link to your organization's um, website on, uh, in the show notes. And um, I'm um, grateful for you coming on and always, always good to talk to you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Justin. This was really great. I really appreciate you. Thank you.